0: Okie dokie, a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. What are we gonna talk about today?
1: Today we are talking about the Gospels. This is Gospels Part 144. Last week, we left off where the resurrected Jesus was walking with the two disciples who were unnamed on the road to Emmaus, and he had just kind of detailed the whole summary of the scriptures, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings concerning himself, a Messiah figure, without them realizing that they were speaking to the resurrected Savior And we saw where they kind of got to a crossroads in their journey, and Jesus seemed like he was going to continue on, do his own thing. He had his own agenda (laughs) at play, and these two individuals did the right thing and beckoned him to stay in their home or in their dwelling place for that night. And it's good that they did, because they got to Experience the resurrected Jesus in a way that they hadn't up until that point whenever they broke bread together and we don't know whether it was the manner in which that he broke the bread that would have been been familiar or if it was something divine, some scales metaphorical scales spiritual scales that were lifted, removed from their eyes but they realized that it was him while they were breaking bread and then Jesus does this weird metaphysical thing and just vanishes from their sight so again we get <laughs> right. aspects of resurrected bodies being similar but different from how our bodies are now Yeah. and these these disciples are like oh like didn't our hearts burn within us when he was saying all these things and now that we realize it was him like of course all of those things fit together because it's, it's the author of the 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 agent the wisdom of God who is telling us these things the the messiah we've been waiting for and they go back and tell those in Jerusalem what they had experienced during the breaking of bread and in the midst of this the text in Luke says as as they were like detailing the events to the rest of the disciples Jesus appears again <laughs> peace be (laughs) with you appears out of nowhere (laughs) and they're all frightened and thought they had seen a ghost and again he's like it seems like a form of reassurance but maybe some rebuking as well like why why are there doubts among you like he was beckoning them to interact with the physical nature of himself like touch touch me and see a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as I have, and he he takes it further and asks them if he if they have anything to eat, and he eats broiled fish in front of them uh, to show that this is not some ethereal spirit like what we want to paint our future realities to be. It is it is a resurrected physical body that has been redeemed by God and Jesus is the first fruits of that. And he he ends last week's talk by breathing the the spirit onto the disciples, and it's a callback to Genesis uh, in
0: God breathing life into the human being. Yeah, a couple of things in there, Samuel. I feel like you're uh, you're really not giving Cleopas his due. You keep saying they're unnamed, and uh, he has a name, man. That's you're
1: <laughs> you're right. Uh sorry, Cleopas. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so, yeah, the, this whole story, I mean, it's, it I don't know, feels kind of fast-paced. There's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of moving parts, but we're not done. Uh, the one thing to remember, we kept all along in these these most recent bits, we kept talking about all of the apostles or, or the 11 that remained or whatever. So now we're going to pick up in John chapter 20, looking at verses 24 through 29, And uh, we're going to find out a little bit more about Thomas. It says this. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So now, here's where we get the detail. Now we find out that one of the 11 wasn't even there for all of this. It was Thomas, the one they called the twin. Do you remember why he was called the twin, Samuel, or at least some of the, the theories behind that? Uh, not off the top of my head, no. It, it's so funny. They think. It's just one possibility, but it's a very interesting one. They think that he may have actually physically looked in appearance a lot like Jesus, and they called him the twin. Hmm. Again, we weren't there. We don't know. But that is an interesting story to come from that little nickname. But anyway, we are never told why he wasn't there the first time. They all tell him the story, everything that's happened, but he's unmoved unless I can see and touch him. I will not believe. Now, Samuel, is skepticism a bad thing? Not at all. Can it be? No doubt. Yeah, just like anything else, it can be taken too far. But it's a really, really good tool in your belt on your quest for truth. Now, depending on how you see this, you might even think that Jesus ultimately rewards Thomas's skepticism by showing up again. Now, again, we're, we're kind of reading into it a little bit, but that's not completely out of, out of the realm of possibility. So anyway, it happens, and it tells us that it's eight days later. So there's that weird question. So in, in like Jewish timekeeping, was this still Sunday? So then that's like the, the, the following Monday, you know, more than a week away. Is it, did it, was it nighttime and therefore it was already Monday? So they'd have to call it Tuesday or, you know, whatever. Anyway, eight days, whatever that calculates to this, this whole scene that, that we talked about, I guess, last episode, him showing up. It's all just kind of recreated. I don't think anybody intentionally did it, but everything seems very much the same. They're all together in a place, the doors are locked, and Jesus just kind of shows up out of nowhere. And I mean, literally, he shows up out of nowhere. Now here, John uses the phrase, came and stood, so, I mean, you know, that kind of gives you that sense of movement. Movement. It sounds a little more like he might have been passing through doors or walls or whatever. Remember, we had that question of, did he really just appear like all of a sudden right there in the middle of the room, or did he pass through walls and show up there or whatever? We still don't know, but this one at least reads a little bit more like maybe he was passing through doors and walls. And Jesus even says the same thing he did last time peace be with you or peace to you. Now, this time, however, Jesus is focused on Thomas alone. He tells Thomas to do exactly what Thomas had declared he wanted to do or what he felt he must do before he would believe. See his hands, see the marks, put his finger in the marks, put his hand in his side. For good measure, he even commands, do not disbelieve, but believe. And Samuel, wouldn't you know, it worked. I mean, it doesn't even tell us that Thomas did in fact touch him or any of those things. Now, we assume that he probably did, but it doesn't even say it, which I find amazing. But Thomas declares two things, my Lord and This, if you were like going into the Old Testament, this is the equivalent of Yahweh, my Lord, Yahweh. And and this is interesting because there's no ambiguity for Thomas. This Jesus, who was a human walking around on the earth and now is back after resurrection, according to Thomas, Jesus is, in fact, God himself. Now, that's not discounting the idea of father, son, spirit, whatever, but it's the equivalent of Yahweh, my Lord. And the second thing he calls him, declares is my God. And this is the equivalent of, well, the word that we might have heard is Elohim. And that is maybe to say he is the Elohim among all Elohim, because Elohim is kind of like a you know, like if somebody came and visited our creation, you might say uh, creature and and people are creatures, animals are creatures, different things. Well, Elohim is kind of like that in the spiritual realm. It's, it's a big category of things, and God is the supreme Elohim, the Elohim above all Elohim, that kind of thing. So Thomas calls him the equivalent of Yahweh and the equivalent of the Elohim. So Jesus is also the incomparable God of all. And what's kind of cool about that is in in Thomas' statement right there, he is actually declaring John, the writer of this gospel, he's declaring his overarching theme or point of this entire gospel, that Jesus is, in fact, God. And one last little bit, as if Jesus is speaking for all of the generations to come, which would include us, of course, he makes, I don't know, I think it's an awesome statement. You, Thomas, believe because you have seen. Side note, Thomas may have been from Missouri.
1: I shall believe it when I see it.
0: Now, Thomas believes because he has seen, but there were going to be many Back in that day and on into the future, including all of us, there would be many who would believe without seeing. And then Jesus says that these believers are particularly blessed. They are happy. They are fortunate. What he's basically saying is another Ashray statement, just like the ones in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are, right? It's all the same thing. These believers are blessed. Same kind of thing. So cool little section of scripture. Got anything in there, Samuel?
1: Can you give me the spark notes to your Missouri joke? Because I totally missed it.
0: <laughs> well, do you know that, you know, all the states have nicknames. Mm-hmm. Do you know what Missouri's nickname is? Uh, show me state. Yes, it's the show me state. Thomas wouldn't believe uh-huh. unless he'd seen it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He was kind of like the original Pixar. Or it didn't happen, guy. <laughs> Except they didn't have Pixar. Yeah. 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 So Thomas may that. have been from Missouri. Yeah. Anything else?
1: Yeah. Um. Are, so are we supposed to take Thomas's declaration here as something significant in comparison to what other disciples have said concerning Jesus's? identity authority up until this point like i mean of course they had some hintings that he was the messiah not not the messiah that they had hoped for not the conquering king but the suffering servant but is this the first time that one of the one of the 12 has now done the equivalent of equating jesus to god himself or is this just reinforcing of things that have already
0: been stated Uh, no it's not the first time and and it's okay on one hand what he's declaring is by all means significant we know that it's a big big deal but no it isn't extra special or overly significant compared to uh, other stories it is uh, it's funny because we end up calling him doubting thomas Mm -hmm. but buddy when he believes He believes like through and through all the way to the top and the bottom and front and back. I mean, Thomas believes. So calling him Doubting Thomas is kind of silly. He believed a lot longer than he didn't. So there's just that.
1: And I just think it's important to take the time that we have for his statement, because I think because of that trope that people give him of Doubting Thomas, they uh, undermine the importance of what he said is like, oh well, of right. course, of course he says that because he he finally gets to see Jesus. But I think it's it's deeper than that. It's it's richer than that for
0: for him, yeah. and for us as readers. Yeah, I mean, he could have said oh, my Messiah mm-hmm. or God's Messiah or King, uh you know, uh, Eternal King, or I mean, you know, whatever. And he he could have said all kinds of things. But wow. Yeah. Yahweh, the Elohim. It's a, it's, a, it's pretty significant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anything else? That's it. Oh well, we're kind of finishing up. Well, I'll talk about it when we get there. But we're kind of at the end of something of sorts. What we'll, we'll see. We're gonna we're gonna read John chapter twenty. These are the last two verses, verses thirty and thirty-one. Now Jesus did. Many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Okay, now, just just to say this out loud, John has now departed from the narrative and he's adding his own commentary. So first, he wants us to know that the things he has told us are not the full story. They're just a sample. Jesus did many other things we'll never even know about. But John has included these sample stories so that we may believe, even though we don't get... To see for ourselves. Now, I just kind of wanted to throw this in. There are a couple notable encounters between Jesus and, let's just say, humans that are in our Bibles, but they're not in these Gospels. And I'm just the two of them right with each other 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 6 and 7. What we find out is that at some point, more than five Hundred believers were gathered together in a place, and Jesus appeared to them all. I'm sure not individually, but appeared, and they all got to see him. They, They all witnessed it. Now, we don't know anything more about that. But all I can think whenever I'm reading it, and because we're at this part in the story, I'm going, well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's Passover week, and all this stuff had happened, and maybe... Maybe people are gathering around. I mean, if you were ever going to have 500 of Jesus's followers all in a place, maybe in the rest of that Passover week would have been a good time. So maybe that's when it happened. But even that, we have no idea. We know that it was sometime in a 40-day span, (laughs) but that's about all we got. Also, at some point, he appeared to his brother, James. Now, tradition, this isn't scripture, tradition says that Jesus' crucifixion and, okay, from James's perspective, his supposed resurrection really got to him. And apparently, James declared a fast, and he was going to fast until he actually got to see the resurrected Jesus in the flesh. God's promised Messiah. Okay. Now, the thing is, apparently, it worked because James did get to see him. So, again, that's tradition. We don't know if that really happened. It's believable, but you know, that's all we got. Another interesting thing about this text, it says that these things have been written so that you may believe. Samuel, I'm going to give you a crack at it. What is it that we are to believe? Uh, that who Jesus says he is, is true. Yeah. In fact, I mean, it says it right in the text that Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of God. And that by believing you might have life. So Jesus is in fact, God's promised Messiah, God's promised anointed one, God's promised king that would rule over the kingdom, over all the earth. And he's not just any king, like any of the previous kings of Israel or any potential future kings they might imagine or hope for. He is the king. He is the son of God. Do you remember that kings were uh, sometimes Mm -hmm. idiomatically called a son of God, right? So he's the son of God. And more than that, also by believing that we might have life. And that's not to say that we get to continue to be alive, certainly not in this life, this age. It's talking about eternal life, a life that has the quantity of forever and the quality of being in his presence, basking in his presence. And how is it that we have that? It is in his name. And that is to say by the merit of, he has accrued with the Father and by the grace that the Father gives, which is apportioning Jesus's superabundant, overflowing merit to us where we fall short. So, I mean, this is like a big, I mean, if the Bible had sound effects right at the end of verse 31, it would go, ta-da, <laughs> <laughs> it's a big deal. And many believe that this is actually the original end of John's gospel. And we're going to see that there are a few stories that follow. There's a chapter 21, but the wording here really doesn't feel, I'm sorry, the wording here really does feel like a conclusion. The additional stories... uh, are followed by a, a it's a, a similar kind of ending, uh, something about the world couldn't contain all the books or whatever you'll see when we get there. Now maybe those stories were added by John, or maybe they were added by someone else. Maybe maybe the sequence just got a little mixed up, or I mean, right? Who knows? We, we're 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 guessing, but it really feels like an ending, and then all of a sudden there's more. So. We're going to cover the remaining stories next and get whatever value we can out of those, but here ends, you know, like the first ending of John's gospel. (laughs) What you got, Samuel?
1: Sounds like uh, John's taking uh, a page out of Tolkien's book with the multiple endings present at the end of Return (laughs) of the King.
0: Right, right.
1: Um, The only thing I really have is just a question of clarification. When... John, the writer, is saying this commentary, um, all these other signs that are not written in this book, it's not supposed to mean post-resurrection. It's meant in the totality
0: of Jesus's life and ministry, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's possible that it included what it, however many days were left, 30-ish days, but it certainly was meant to include everything that preceded that as well. That's what I figured. I just wanted to double check. All right. Well, we're going on uh, and we're going to continue in John chapter 21. Uh, We're going to look at verses one through three. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, We'll go with you. They went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So, if you were reading along, and if you thought that John might actually be ending, well, that just shows what you know. It just mostly ended. And we have a couple more stories now. The disciples are all together somewhere back in Galilee near the sea. Uh, uh, the Sea of Tiberias is the Sea of Galilee. It's the same. And, and it wasn't actually all of the disciples or apostles. It was Peter, Thomas, Nathanael, James, and John. And then two others that don't even get their names mentioned. Ouch. They didn't even rate, right?
1: Maybe it was Cleophas since I haven't been naming him.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Now we can understand. A a lot of people uh, through history have looked at this and I don't know why, but a lot of people are really convinced that the two must be Andrew and Philip. And, you know, they give various reasons for, you know, why they might think it or whatever. But isn't that funny that they don't get named and a bunch of people feel pretty certain? Yeah, it's probably these two, but we don't know. It's just a thought. Now, remember, Jesus had told them to go to Galilee, told them that they would see him there. This may be that story, the the one of when he meets them there, or or, or at least one of the stories. We don't know, but you you get the sense that these guys, they might still be feeling just a little bit lost, uh, maybe without direction. They, they just don't really know what to do with themselves. So Peter has an answer. He nails up his gone fishing sign, and he heads out and and you know, Samuel, here uh, serious question. When you kind of get lost and you don't know what to do, uh, you know, going along in life, what do humans often do?
1: They return to the things that they find meaning and that give them peace of mind and clarity,
0: I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Familiar things. I'm lost. I don't know what to do. I'm going to do something that I've done before, something that I feel like I'm somehow in control or... Not lost or something, right? And so Peter's going to go do that, and he's not alone. The others they go with him. Now, just for a moment, let's think practically. Fishing probably remained a pretty normal part of the rest of their lives. I mean, I know they they had you know some communal living in Jerusalem, and there were the story gets a little complicated, but. They still had to care for themselves and their families, and that took resources. And so to imagine that they continued to fish isn't isn't crazy thinking at all. And it's it's pretty likely. And we don't know how much or whatever, but, but they did. So the thing is, work, it's a part of being human. It got instituted all the way back in the Garden of Eden, Genesis, and it is it is what we look forward to in our resurrected state, in the world to come. There will be work, and it won't be suffering, painful, toil, any of that. It'll be fulfilling. It's an important part of who we are as humans, and we shouldn't run away from it. We shouldn't despise it. We shouldn't avoid it. So anyway, they all get in the boats, and they start fishing. In fact, they fish all night. It kind of depends on who you are. That might sound like fun, but they caught nothing. And so if they weren't already feeling a little bit disappointed, going a full night of fishing and getting nothing, I bet you they were feeling pretty disappointed by then. So, Anything before we go on, Samuel?
1: Um, Are we supposed to infer
0: that they started fishing before nightfall? Uh, You know, I don't know. I mean, uh, it was it was ordinary to fish at night. That was all very common. Uh, so they may have gone out while it was, what do we call that, dusk in the mm-hmm. evening? Can we do that? Uh, they may have gone out at a time like that, but, I, you know, I don't know. Why do you ask? Is there something, <laughs> something you're seeing or thinking? No, of?
1: I'm just curious if, like, uh, just based on the geography, if it would have been less uh, burdensome to escape the heat so to speak by not starting to fish until after the sun had set but, oh right i mean we were let's see we were a couple months before when we, you and i were in israel we were a couple months removed from the passover portion of the year and it was it was only increasing in terms of heat we had just we were there during the tail end of their winter, so to speak, and they were getting ready to ramp up the heat. So it just makes me think like maybe maybe it was intentional why the text says that they, but that night they caught nothing because they
0: were trying to protect themselves from the sun. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure they they either went out when it was already dark or just before dark. That would have been the norm. They wouldn't have gone out in the middle of the day part of it it's kind of funny i don't know if it's true some of the some of the people i read they actually think that part of the reason they never fished in the day back then is because the fish could actually see the nets Mm. and they would avoid them and at night they couldn't so yeah maybe i don't know yeah well depends on how clear that water is i don't know (laughs) and i don't know what fish can see they've never told me but anyway let's go on John chapter 21, let's look at verses 4 through 7. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, and threw himself into the sea. All right. So they're sitting around. They don't know what to do with themselves. They decide to go fishing. And let's just say that it's pretty much getting dark. They're out all night fishing. And just as it's starting to get light out, day is just beginning to break. They're headed back. And they see some guy standing on the shore. Now we know it's Jesus, but they don't. So it's some stranger... And he calls them children, which, you know, that may sound a little strange to us. It probably sounded a little strange to them, too. But it's a really interesting word choice. In, well, it's usually used of like one of your own offspring. And so that makes you think of, well, okay, but Jesus was their master, the master disciple thing, and a master becomes like a father. in fact, he replaces the the actual real blood father in many ways. And it isn't just used for your own offspring, it's it's uh, very specifically a term of endearment. And so here's this stranger treating them as if they're his own offspring and 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 a very endearing term. so kind of weird. And it had to sound at least a little strange to the disciples since they don't yet know that it's him. And he asks if they have any fish. But wouldn't you know, there's a strange word that's used here too. It's not the common or obvious word for fish. The word, it's more like something maybe a little more generic, like food or solid food, something like that. Now, okay, I get it. In the context, it's probably just obvious what he's asking these returning fishermen. Hey, did you catch any fish? But why that word? And it made me think, Samuel, it kind of harkens back to when Jesus ate food to prove he wasn't a ghost or spirit or an angel. He ate solid food. Now, they may or may not have cared about the word choices or noticed the word choices or whatever, but it is something for us to see right? He's, he's, he's asking about solid food. They quickly answer, and this is this is good. It's like, nope, no fish, didn't catch any fish. So Jesus tells them to cast on the right side of the boat, which makes me ask the question, Samuel, had they been casting on the wrong side of the boat all night?
1: I mean... <laughs> they weren't doing something right because they didn't catch anything. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, of course, I'm being silly. But yeah, in a way, it was kind of like the wrong side of the boat because they didn't catch anything. Obviously, Jesus meant the opposite of left, the, the right side of the boat, the other side of the boat, whatever. Well, here's what's amazing, though. They did what this stranger asked. No pushback at all. And when they did, they caught more fish than they could even bring in. And Samuel, does that sound kind of familiar? It was bringing all kinds of bells. It's like this has happened before. Yeah, this was way back. Back in Luke chapter 5, verses 4 through 7, Jesus, he had done a very similar thing. Uh, and, And in that case, I think they said it was so many fish, the boats were sinking or something like that. Now, here's the thing, Samuel. The first story was a call to discipleship. And side note, interesting side note, they did push back a little bit back then. I mean, they didn't know who Jesus was or anything back then either. So that's kind of funny. Anyway, the first story was a call to discipleship. And so maybe we can look at this one and say, well, it's it's kind of like a renewed call to discipleship. Now it doesn't follow with the rest of the story, but and it's just interesting that there's that parallel here and then john not that he's you know gloating or anything in his gospel but he was the first to recognize it is the lord and he told peter now peter doesn't appear to recognize jesus either before or necessarily even after john tells him but he does not hesitate. He takes John's word. He jumps in the water and he heads for the shore. And I think it's because Peter was making sure that he was going to beat John this time. Not like that race to the tomb. So first, though, he does something that I think probably sounds very strange to our ears. Before he jumps in the water, he puts clothes on. Samuel, does that not seem a little bit backwards? Very backwards. Yeah. Why would you do that? Well, there are a couple schools of thought here. And and they make their way into like the various English translations. So you'll you'll probably see these pretty quickly. The first idea is this. Well, it, it says that he was stripped for work. Okay. So what they're saying is that Peter was lightly clad had very little on. And and I don't know, we might get the image of like a loincloth or something like that. And so, because he was dressed that way, he wanted to have some sort of halfway respectable or respectful dress on to greet Jesus, to greet the master. And so, he puts on the outer garment, garment even though he's about to jump in the water. So, that's one school of thought. The other one, slightly different, it says, well, now hold on a second. Peter was already wearing what we would think of as an outer garment. But here's here's the important part. He had nothing on underneath. So again, he was stripped for work. He was lightly clad. He had nothing on underneath. So removing it wasn't an option. Naked, like all out nakedness, that was not a thing in Jewish culture. You didn't do that. So he only had an hour garment, nothing underneath, so he couldn't remove it. Therefore, he tied it up or girded it so that he could more easily swim. So that's the, the second view. Now, you can take your pick for what it's worth. It's just important to note it was super, super highly unlikely that he was out there fishing in his birthday suit. That's not the image that you should have. One way or another, lightly clad, and he's heading out to see the master. So anything about that, Samuel?
1: Yeah, I guess my mind is thinking of, man, at the begin if we're just thinking about Jesus's interaction with his disciples, the, the first interactions that we see involve a miracle, so to speak, with fishing, and then one of his last interactions in, involves the same thing usually yeah. when you have bookends of something that means that there might be some kind of buried treasure within the text in the center uh, Right? It, feel, it feels kind of chiastic to me but I have no idea how I could tie find things the together to find the center <laughs> but it, I'm just saying yeah. that it, it may be there and if someone has the tools that I don't you should try to go find it
0: yeah, well, I'm going with where were they? the transfiguration. Mm. I'm gonna call. I'm gonna call that the center. Yeah, that is a complete and total guess right off the top of my head. So, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, you're right though. It does have that feeling of bookends, so it's good. Anything else? Not currently. All right. Yeah, it seems like we're just storytelling, so we'll keep going. John chapter twenty one verses eight through eleven. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large, fish 153 of them and although there were so many the net was not torn all right so the other disciples follow along in the boat and i I just it, it seems important that we talk about this sam you remember we talked about this before when they were fishing there very likely would have been two boats that's how they fished they had to do the nets around the the outside and the ones that they you know grab the fish with all the stuff whatever likely two boats and although when you read this it keeps saying boat singular so it's it's kind of weird but what's interesting is that the other boats that it talks about it's like a the normal word for boat this word here is specifically talking about a small boat and so it makes it feel like it's separate or distinct or somehow in contrast to the earlier boat that was mentioned. So maybe we can see in that that, yeah, he's really talking about two boats. It just didn't come out that way. But we don't know it. It's, it, it keeps reading as if it's singular. So we can go with that too. Either way works. Now, because they couldn't bring the fish in, they're just kind of dragging the net along with them. Now, there's good news because they're only about 100 yards out. So they didn't have to drag it very far. But basically, everyone is now on shore, except for the fish. And this stranger, remember, okay, I guess John knows that it's Jesus, believes it's Jesus. Peter kind of trusts him. uh, But do they all know now or not? I mean, have, have they all started to get it? Or is John telling them or what? We don't know. So, maybe it's a stranger, maybe it's Jesus, but he's already got a little fire going, and he's cooking fish on it, and he has bread. And, and, and I'm thinking, you know, by what he says next, it's possible, maybe he only had enough for himself, I don't know. Or, maybe he had a whole bunch, we, we can't really tell, and it doesn't really matter, because it's Jesus, he could always multiply, it. so whatever. But what he does is, he tells them to bring some of the fish that they just caught, and Samuel why would he do that what's Jesus's point what's his purpose hey bring some of those fish over uh he wants to share a meal with them yeah they're going to cook them up and and it's important to have that in your in in your mind's image because Samuel what does it take to cook up some fish uh
1: time effort uh physical skill I...
0: yeah i don't know how they did it back then they definitely had to kill it. And then did they have to clean it, gut it, whatever, like we do today? Did they do that kind of stuff then? Couldn't find a lot of information about that. Is Jesus going to cook them up for them? Or is he telling them to bring it on over? I've got a fire. You can cook it yourselves. Whatever. Don't know. But it's kind of a kind of an interesting image that they're going to, you know, share this together. Now, Peter, remember, he swam in. So he's been on shore for a little bit. Now that they've shown up and Jesus tells them to bring the fish over, well, man, he jumps into action. Now, <laughs> it's kind of funny. If you take that text super literally, it says that Peter hauled that net in himself. <laughs> now, I think it's safe to assume that he only helped, or he certainly had help. But it, it reads like it's just him. And, you know, with that many fish, 153... I'm sure everyone would have been needed to haul that thing in. It it probably wasn't so bad while it was still in the water, but trying to get it up on land, that was a big deal. And then here's another question, Samuel. Did Jesus help Hmm. or just watch? I mean, I I don't know what to think because it's like if he didn't help, he's not being very, you know, helpful. (laughs) Couldn't think of another word. So he's not doing that. uh, But then again, it's like, well, I don't know. He's this resurrected dude, and and uh, but then he's also a stranger, possibly still, or maybe they all know him at this point. It it's just weird when you're trying to play out this little scene in your mind. It's it's a little bit weird. But anyway, the net has a hundred and fifty three fish, and not just fish, large fish in it. Now we're led to believe that this should have been plenty to tear the nets but it didn't John specifically tells us that it didn't the fish and the net apparently were both miracles now I, does anybody ever wonder Samuel do you wonder why does it tell us 153 fish I mean why that number and not some other number I mean if you're if you're any anybody's
1: rem, remotely exposed to Jewish culture, they should know that they have a fascination with numbers and meaning behind it. So that should be like a a red flag already. That's like maybe there's something behind that.
0: Yeah, but here's the thing: at least across the the time since Jesus, all that people have come up with a lot of ideas. Some of them noticeably better than others. Okay. But for me none of them really came out as like, oh man, that really sounds like the answer. So I don't have one that I can, you know, actually endorse and say this is what I think's going on. There're just so many ideas and some of them are really super interesting. But I decided, you know what? I'm going to pick one that's kind of fun and we'll talk about that one. So Samuel, have you ever played pool, like a pool table, mm-hmm. cues? Yeah, okay. And have you ever been the guy that had to rack the balls i have okay so you know you know what i'm talking about so uh you got that triangle thingy and and you're you're putting the balls in it and each row if you want to think of it that way each row has one more ball than the previous row so if you start at the top of the triangle you've got your first row it's just got one ball in it you go to the second row well now it's got two balls in it you go to third row now it's got three balls in it right that kind of thing is five rows in total. And so it's a total of 15 balls, one plus two plus three plus four plus five, okay? Why am I talking about this? Well, if you take that same idea, and there's actually a name for this, Samuel, they're called triangular numbers. I've never heard of this in my life, but here you go. They're triangular numbers. And if you just keep going, a sixth row, a seventh row, et cetera, et cetera, when you get up to row 17, you will have a total of 153 balls. Now, can you think of anything more spiritual than that? (laughs) See, again, there are so many ideas. Why 153 fish? This story is just one example. Somebody looked at this and said, man, you know what? That's important. 153 is a triangular number, and (laughs) there's something for us in that. I have no idea what it is. I just think it's funny. But if we could come back, be just a little more serious, we can point to at least a few obvious things. Number one, so many fish. Well, that represents the abundance of the kingdom. So there's a thing. And number two, that untorn net. Well, that kind of represents this whole idea that none of his true disciples will be lost and that there will be unity among them. They'll all be in the same net, so to speak, right? None will be lost. They'll all be together. And then the third one, in the same way we talked about that first story about them in the boat catching a bunch of fish, that was when they were actually called to be disciples. Jesus told them, I'll make you fishers of men. Remember all that? Well, if we consider this as that moment that they become fishers of men well then we see in that the necessity of jesus the necessity of god without him no fish or we could say no men but with him an abundance of fish or an abundance of men so i know i told a silly story but i brought it around to some good serious stuff and i like this little bit what do you got in there samuel yeah i got a
1: couple things um we got to visit the Sea of Galilee during our Israel trip, and I think I can speak for you, Paul, in that that whole area of the Galilee area was one of our favorite places to oh, spend yeah. time and get taught lessons about the land and God's relationship yeah. with it and his people. Um, and it's just so beautiful to end in to think that Jesus called that his home and used that backdrop for the majority of his teachings across his ministry. Um I just think it's Yeah. It was a powerful moment to get to see the landscape in which this event happened and so much of the gospel accounts happened. Um but then more specifically yeah. we got to see so there are natural, I guess you could say, streams or watersheds that are feeding into the Sea of Galilee. And apparently that running water, that Maim Kaim, is an attractor of fish. And we got to see that right. ourselves. We were down at the beach and there was like a pretty big cascade dumping into the sea. And I mean you could just be right along the water's edge and there were just tons and tons of fish and th- you know they were just saying that like it's not unreasonable to think that that would have been one of the places that the disciples would have chosen to try to go fishing because they would have known that areas like that would have been hot spots for fish to localize in order for them to get it get get them so yeah i don't think i don't think i've ever done this before with okie dokie notes before but i'm going to try i took a ton of photos when we were in israel i'm going to see if i can attach two of them within the document just for your own visual reference because i think it's helpful oh well and then on top of that i i don't know if it was coincidence or not but within that same beach that we were standing at, and they had a little lesson there and whatnot, there was a fire ring right down on the beach next to that, like, cascading waterfall oh, that right. where the fish were. And that yeah. that was also very powerful to just get that image of, like, could this have been what it looked like for Jesus to be waiting on the shore with that right. fire and the disciples coming in on their boats with, with all that fish? So, uh yeah, oh, yeah. I just... Uh, if you ever get a chance to go to Israel, it's definitely another tool for you to deepen your faith and understand God's relationship and covenant with the land itself.
0: Yeah, no doubt. We don't know this from this little bit of text, but people speculate that they were again in the area of Tabka. And that area, I believe it's technically the seven springs of Topka and the point it's funny that you call it a hot spot because the point is that the water coming out of those springs is supposedly i didn't actually get to check it myself but supposedly the water's warmer coming out of those springs and that's why the fish gather around it they like the warmth of that water so just an interesting thing but yeah it is a beautiful beautiful place and i, I okay I'm not moving anytime soon. But if somebody forced me at gunpoint to move to Israel and I had my choice, I would probably live somewhere around the Sea of Galilee for multiple reasons. It, and it, it just really was nice. It's good. Yeah. All right. Well, I think it would be unkind of us to do the next little section because then we'd be keeping everybody too long. So I think we got to cut it short here. Sam, you got anything else before we go?
1: Yeah, I do actually, oh. uh, which reinforces why we should stop. Um, your question of 153 fish and why that's the number, and your the triangular number imagery, made me think of one of Jesus' parables in Matthew 13 verses 31 through 35, and that is the parables of the mustard seed and the yeast. And basically, the that concept was like the kingdom of heaven is going to start very small, like a mustard seed planted in a field, or a little bit of uh, yeast that's mixed into a large batch of dough. But eventually, those things grow to like take over the whole entity itself. Right. And um, just thinking about like what maybe rabbinic discipleship looks like if you think about that triangular pattern you you first start with one at the top and we could say that's god that's messiah that is that is the ideal and then god invites you know or you, you could put in a, a rabbi a teacher who's wanting to pursue relationship with someone else then the next row underneath that is the original person plus one more, the person that they are coming alongside in their life. Then the next row b- below yeah. that are those two people in relationship together and then bringing a third one in and et cetera and et cetera yeah. and et cetera until you get to 153. So to me, that's like, I don't know, that connects well in my mind to think about. It's I, I'm sure people get overwhelmed of those who are, disciples of christ and then thinking about great commission kind of stuff and like oh like how do i go and reach the world and maybe it's it shouldn't feel as big as we try to make it out to be it's like invite one person into your life to be able to share your life with and invest in and be able to share these things that you are learning and then As time goes on, then they get to add someone else. And before long, you've created like a generational tree of God's wisdom being passed down from person to person. So I don't know if that has any credence, but it was a picture that came to my mind and I thought it was kind of cool.
0: Yeah. And uh, as a just in case, if anybody got the uh, idea of multi-level marketing in their mind after this little image that we're painting... Please don't do that. <laughs> all are you the money about a isn't
1: pyramid scheme.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all the money isn't centered at the top. So just yeah, this is it's different than that. <laughs> the gospel the wealth is not is... a pyramid scheme. <laughs> no, it's scattered the, the the goodness is scattered all throughout. Right. But yeah, I'm only being half serious. All right. Yeah, that's good. Those are all good things. Anything else? I believe I am plumb out. Alright, then let's get out
1: of here. Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie Dokie Most Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And be sure to leave us a 5-star rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at wwwokie And if you'd like to get hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com and until next time we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth we'll talk to you again soon